Welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles 2018, and a special welcome to all of you who are attending for the very first time. It'll be a feast that you remember for years to come. I always enjoy this special occasion, this first night. There's an excitement in the air. We're glad to be back together, and I feel sorry for those who miss this opening evening. In this short service, I'm asking the question, why are we here? And the answer is really very simple. We are here preparing for the time when all things will be restored upon this earth once again. When the kingdom of God, that is the family of God, will be resurrected and will be ruling over the people that are on this earth. It's called the restitution of all things in the King James Version in the third chapter of the book of Acts. And we're going to go there, first of all, to Acts, the third chapter. And what we find is that this was a short time after the day of Pentecost in 31 A.D., very shortly after the New Testament church began. We read in the third chapter that Peter and John were going into the temple, and they were confronted by a lame man who was begging. And Peter gave him a very interesting response when he was looking for something to uh, be put in the plate or the dish or the cup that he had there. In verse 6, it says, Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he says, uh, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, what an incredible statement coming with the power of God behind it. And the man immediately jumped up and started walking and started walking with Peter and John. And as they went through the temple, no doubt people recognized who this was. And this created a crowd for them. Now we come to verse 11. It says, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And so Peter then began to respond to them and said, Why are you so surprised at this? Why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And then he began to speak of Jesus to explain to them that they had killed the Messiah, that it was Jesus Christ of Nazareth that was the one who they killed who is the one who uh, is giving them the power, this man the power to, to walk once again. Uh, he said, you denied the Holy One, verse 14, and the just. Verse 15, you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, verse 16, through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through, through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And then he commands them to repent, calls them to repentance. He says, repent, verse 19, therefore, and be converted. It wasn't just a matter of a one-time repentance at the beginning, but to be converted, which takes time, to be changed, to be transformed into a different person, a new man from the old man. And that's something that we must strive to do, to overcome and to change. And at this Feast of Tabernacles, it gives us an opportunity to assess how we're doing in certain areas of our life, 
how patient we are with perhaps waitresses or waiters when they're busy. It gives us the opportunity to live in temporary dwellings where maybe we're having to share a bathroom with uh, our wife and children and maybe we have two or three bathrooms at home, but now we're crammed in this short uh, space. And so we have to learn patience and sometimes in driving, traffic and finding parking places. All those things give us an opportunity to be converted, to be changed, to be transformed from the person that we may have been before. So he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration, or as the old King James says, the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. So here we have this passage, and this is the time that we are looking for. We are looking forward to the time when God's government will be restored upon this earth. We're looking forward to the time when we, as the saints of God, will be resurrected, and we will be changed and be given spirit bodies. And we will no longer sin. And we will be ruling, not by the seeing of our eyes or the hearing of the ears, but we'll be able to read people's minds and understand where they're coming from and be able to judge righteous judgment and help bring peace to a very troubled world. We talk during this feast a lot about lions and lambs and and uh, serpents and children playing on the hole of the serpent and this sort of thing. That's for physical human beings, but for those of us who are the saints of God, who have God's Holy Spirit, who are growing and overcoming and being led by the Spirit, we're going to be resurrected, and our part will be in ruling as the family of God upon this earth. That's the reason that we're here. Uh, this feast points to that time of restoration. And so we go back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, where we find that God commanded us to keep this particular festival. So Leviticus 23, where we have so many of the, uh, well, all of the uh, holy days are mentioned there, we're going to read the one that we're in at this time. Leviticus 23, and we'll begin in verse 34. Or verse 33, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month. That's where we are at sunset tonight, beginning the fifteenth. The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the eternal. Notice that it is to God. It's not a vacation for us, but it is a Feast of Tabernacles to the eternal. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Then we skip down to verse 39. It says, Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast to the eternal for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest. That's where we are today. And on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And we'll eventually get to that, and that'll come a lot quicker than we often uh, hope for. But... uh, We have to be patient all the way through, but this time goes by very, very quickly. 
And you shall take for yourselves, verse 40, on the first day, the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the eternal your God for seven days. And Israel, they literally carry around a handful of some of these uh, branches that are mentioned here. But the intent was to build booths, to build temporary dwellings. You shall keep it as a feast to the eternal for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths, temporary dwellings, tents, tabernacles as they're sometimes called, but temporary dwellings for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Now, some latch on to that phrase, all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, but we know that the command really is for all Israelites, spiritual Israelites as well. And we find that in Zechariah the 14th chapter, which no doubt you'll be hearing about during this feast, that all nations are going to go up to Jerusalem. And it specifically mentions the Egyptians. So all nations, Jews and Gentiles alike, are going to keep this feast in the future. It says that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So there is a message, there is a lesson about temporary dwellings. And that's very important for us to understand. Sometimes we we look about feasting, we think about all kinds of things, going out to dinner with people. But we don't think about the fact that we are living in temporary dwellings. Right now, as Peter, we shall see, uh, called his body a tent, a temporary dwelling. He says, I am the eternal, your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the eternal. Now, over in Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, we have the uh, command of how we are to observe this feast. Uh, God didn't tell us that we should uh, come to the feast and not give us the means by which we should do so. And I think it's very important that we take these words seriously, not just the fact that we come here and enjoy it, but how we are to finance this particular occasion and all of God's festivals. And verse 22, he says, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. I remember an individual many years ago uh, whose wife was influencing him quite a bit, and he thought this man was a, a minister, obviously not a faithful minister. He read someplace that they only kept it every third year. But here the scripture is very plain that they were to keep it uh, year by year, every single year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, are the firstlings of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the eternal your God always. So we find that this is a festival with purpose, that we may learn to fear or to respect or to grow in our love and affection and, and awe of the Almighty God who has given this to us. But if the journey is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the eternal your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the eternal your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the eternal your God chooses. And of course, that's what most of us do. We don't load up our, our car or a pickup or a van with uh, sacks of grain and 
We don't take the, the fatted calf and bring him. Uh, at least most of us don't do that. Uh, we, we exchange it into money. And he says, you shall not forsake the Levite who's within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. So here we see the command, and God tells that we are to save up from year to year a tithe of our income for this very specific purpose. And brethren, I, I have the feeling in many cases that people are not faithful in this way. They may be faithful in first tithe, but they think that, well, this is just for me, and I'll take a little bit at the end. No, this is very special, and it's important that we do it as God tells us to do it. So some of you who may be new, uh, this may be a transition for you, but you'll enjoy the feast a whole lot more when you obey God's command in doing that. And some of you have been around a while, I say the same thing to you. Now, God gave three men a glimpse into this future time of restoration. We read of it in Matthew, the 17th chapter, but I'm going to begin in Matthew, the 16th chapter, at the very end, because we find that uh, the chapters sometimes distract us from what the, the story flow is. So if you stop reading one day at the end of chapter 16 and you pick up the Bible and you start reading in chapter 17 the next day, you may miss the connection that is here. But in verse 28 of chapter 16, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So they would see him coming in his kingdom. And he said that some of them would not taste death until that time. And we have the fulfillment of that in the next verse, which is chapter 17, verse 1. He says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. I've had the question asked on more than one occasion, well, how did he know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, they just watched the Ten Commandments and saw that uh, Moses looked like Charleston Heston. Well, of course not. Uh, obviously, if they're talking, they may have addressed each other. They may have greeted one another. And we don't have to worry about those things. They didn't go by some pictures that they'd seen of uh, Moses and Elijah with halos around their head or anything like that. Uh, this, obviously... This is a very simple thing that there must have been some addressing of who they were or the conversation was very clear that uh, that's who they were. And they appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always thought that was a rather strange statement to make. Uh, suddenly he's, he's seeing this in vision, as we shall see. It is a vision. And he says, shall we make a, a tabernacle, a booth, a tent, one for each of you? Even the uh, New Bible Commentary Revised says this, there may be some connection with the Feast of Tabernacles, which was thought of as a time when the nations would come up to Jerusalem to worship. Well, it's not just thought of, of that time, but we see that very clearly from Zechariah the 14th, and we'll look at that briefly here in a minute. But it, uh, it references Zechariah 14, verses 16 to 19 in that context. 
is it so strange that they saw Moses and Elijah, uh, they saw them talking with a glorified Christ, and they thought, or Peter thought, well, maybe we should make a tabernacle here because he understood the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles. We should make a, a tabernacle for each of them. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And then in verse 9, very important verse, because many people misunderstand and think that Moses and Elijah were literally uh, there, that they were resurrected from the grave, or they came from heaven, or whatever their ideas are. He says, now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus uh, commanded them, saying, tell the vision. So this was a vision that they saw. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And so this was a fulfillment of what we read in chapter 16 and verse 28, that there are some standing here at that time who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So his kingdom didn't really come then, but they saw this vision of Jesus Christ coming in his kingdom. Now, this particular event had a profound effect on these three individuals. Let's notice over in Second Peter and the first chapter, Second Peter 1, we'll begin here. Uh, he's talking about how we are to uh, take one character trait and add to it another, that we are to grow in grace and in knowledge. And so he says in verse 4, by which you've been given us exceeding great and precious promises uh, that we would be partakers of the divine nature. That's what's going to happen to us if we remain faithful to the end. That God is going to, to, we're partakers of the divine nature right now with God's spirit in us. He impregnated us with his spirit, but we are going to be spirit beings as God is uh, in the very near future. But also for this reason, verse 5, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and so forth. He tells them to add these things, and he says, for if these things are yours and abound, these things abound in us, and we might want to look at those things and think about it during this Feast of Tabernacles, that these are character traits that we need to have developed within us, with the power of God's Spirit working with us, but he's not going to do that for us without our part in it. We have to do our part. Uh, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted. If we lack these character traits of God's Spirit, we are short-sighted even to blindness. And has for, he, he that has has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, verse 10, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. These are the things we must do to make sure that we do not stumble, as so many others have in just the last century or so. Therefore, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, uh, 
though you know them and are established in the present truth. And some take that to mean that truth is fluid. Well, it's the present truth today, and then there'll be different truth. If we understand that the sense of it, the true sense of it is that the truth which is present with them, with us right now. Uh, Yes, I think it right, verse 13, as long as I am in this tent. Notice, he refers to his body as a tent, a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, knowing that his life was coming to an end, and that he would have to put off this physical uh, body that God had given to him to live in this physical life just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Mr. John O'Gwynn talked about this, how the uh, coming together, the canonization, as it's called, of the New Testament was put together. And and, uh, James, Peter, and John were the ones who were up on the hill at that time, the mountain, and he's saying that we... He's talking about those three, and we're going to make sure that you have a record. Now, James had been uh, martyred by this time, but John was still there and Peter was still there. And he says, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. In other words, there would be a written record. There would be a a record of what uh, had been uh, taught in, in the New Testament and how it was to be put together. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We we didn't just make this up out of the, the clear blue. But he says, But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, they saw him in vision in a glorified state. He says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So the ones that were on the holy mountain with him at that time were James, Peter, and John. They were given a glimpse into the future. And obviously this is something that Peter uh, was, was thinking about at this time. It was something that had a profound impact on his life. And we might ask the question, why Peter, James, and John? Why not all the disciples? Why didn't they all see Christ in vision in his glorified state? Well, I think the answer is probably pretty simple. Peter was a leader among the apostles. Now, I know that there are some who have other ideas on that. There are some who think that, well, they were just all equals. But very clearly, Peter was the one who was out front constantly among the twelve. And uh, we find that James was the first to be martyred. We read that in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts, that James was the very first of the apostles to be put to death. He was not the only one. In fact, uh, history, however accurate it might be, uh, shows us that all but John were martyred. Uh, John then carried the ball through the remainder of the first century. John was the last of the living apostles. So Peter, the leading apostle at the time, James, the first to be martyred, and John, who was the one that would go all the way to the end of the century or very close to the end of the first century. And 
uh, finish off the, the, the Bible in that sense with the book of Revelation and uh, put all those things together. And so we see that they had very significant roles that God gave them encouragement. He gave James the, the encouragement, the, the strength with that vision of knowing what was ahead to be able to go through martyrdom. Uh, he was the first one. The others could then follow. Uh, Peter also apparently was martyred, but he was the leader and he needed that vision and John needed to carry that all the way to the end of his life. He couldn't just get so far and then say, well, I don't know, uh, it's time to give up because I don't know if, if God is real or something. In John, the seventh chapter, we see that this feast is very important for us to keep because we see that Jesus kept it even under the threat of death. In John, the seventh chapter, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Pretty good reason to stay out of the area. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Remember that John wrote this at the end of the, the first century, and by that time, there were many Gentiles in the church, and so he uses the expression, the Jews' a Feast of Tabernacles. But we read back in the Old Testament that it is God's feast. This is God's feast. These are my feasts, as he says there in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus. These are the feasts of the Lord. But he wanted the Gentiles to be able to understand that it was the feast that the Jews keep because they were the ones who primarily were keeping it, although the true church was, but the Jews were more numerous at that time. And he says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Now we know that that changed after the resurrection, that his brother James and his brother Jude or Judas, uh, not, not Iscariot, but his brother Jude, uh, all became disciples of Christ. They, they knew who he was. They saw him after he was resurrected. Then they believed, and they became faithful and powerful servants of God, James being the one who was over the Jerusalem church for a number of years. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. So he commanded them to go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. Notice he didn't say he wasn't going up to the feast. He says, I'm not yet going up to the feast. So he sent his brothers, his family, up to keep the feast. But uh, he said, I'm not going up as yet, for my time has not yet fully come which may have made them think that he wouldn't be going at all. But when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So Jesus kept the feast even under the threat of death. And the remainder of the chapter talks about how he then appeared in the middle of the feast or went into the temple and began teaching and speaking. And we read about the last great day, how he observed that and how he spoke on that 
particular occasion. And so we see that even under the threat of death, that Jesus kept this feast. We find that in uh, Zechariah, the 14th chapter, that the whole world is going to be keeping this feast. Zechariah 14. And you can read at the beginning of the chapter how the day of the Lord is coming and how the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives at that time and how all the nations are going to come up to fight against Jerusalem and to fight against Christ. And we read how the uh, the Mount of Olives is going to split in two. That's not happened yet. Uh, it's going to split in two and waters are going to flow out to the east and to the west. And then we read in verse 16, after a battle that uh, Christ destroys all of his enemies there that come up against him, it says, it shall come to pass, in verse 16, that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Now, notice it says that all nations are going to come up. Verse 17, it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 19, This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we're having the opportunity to be pioneers and keeping that particular feast, understanding the New Testament significance of it. And we're going to be called upon, no doubt, to teach as we are resurrected and as we will learn through this feast that we're going to be able to interact with human beings and tell them this is the way, walk you in it. We're going to have to teach God's way, teach the the way of righteousness, teach the nations that they should come up and keep this feast. And we'll be able to give them, perhaps by inspiration, perhaps by teaching, some of the lessons that they are to learn, because we will have learned those lessons. I think back on my early feasts and how, for me, uh, I, I knew that there was a spiritual meaning to it all, but I was pretty young at the time. I think I was still uh, 18, and not quite 19, in my first feast. And uh, for me, uh, I heard that I could eat uh, whatever I wanted. Uh, so steak three times a day, breakfast, uh, steak and eggs, uh, a lunch, a nice steak, a dinner, uh, fine steak. And, and I, I ate very well for a while, but after a few days, that gets to be a bit much. But I learned over a period of time that it's far more blessed to give than to receive, as we read in Acts, the 20th chapter. And so I began to see that there's another way of keeping the feast, not in a selfish way. Yes, we're to enjoy those things. And I love going out for a nice meal during the Feast of Tabernacles with the the best company that we can find, God's people. And I enjoy those things. But the emphasis on the feast is, is learning and coming to understand more about God's way of life and putting into practice God's give way of life. And... That, those are lessons that we learn, and sometimes we learn those lessons 
when we're just a little bit wealthy, you might say, when we have that extra money that we can do, in a sense, whatever we want. And it's easy to become selfish in our approach to the feast. Uh, many times people go to particular areas because it's a vacation for them. They look at it as a vacation. Well, it may be taking your vacation time from work, but it's not a vacation. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It is one of God's festivals that needs to be celebrated with purpose. And so let us have purpose as we go through this festival. It's about the millennium, when the family of God will rule. It's a time of temporary dwellings, when we are to be reminded that we are physical, that we need that food to be able to sustain life, and that we can enjoy it because God gave us these wonderful things, the, the taste buds that we have in our mouths so that we can enjoy the different flavors, uh, the different textures and so forth of food and drink. And God gives that to us, but we live in these temporary dwellings, a reminder that all of this, this physical life, is simply temporary, that it is going to come to an end just as Peter said that his tent was going to come to an end, his physical existence. We portray a time of peace, prosperity, and happiness for mankind. We look forward to that time when all nations will come together in peace, when there will no longer be threats and rattling of swords and then the actual battles that take place which uh, blow apart and hack and destroy and bludgeon uh, the lives of human beings made in the image of God. Uh, human beings just like us who have the same hopes, the same dreams. No matter where they come from in the world, we all want to live a peaceful life, love, be loved, raise families, this type of thing. I know there are a few people that don't want to get married, don't want to have families, but uh, I think that the majority of mankind just wants to live a peaceful life, to enjoy life in, in peace and harmony. And that time is coming. We portray that time of peace when swords will be beaten into plowshares and we will have a different way of life at that time. We're reminded of our reward, glorified members of the God family, born into the very family of God, no longer able ourselves to suffer pain or the, the, the ravages of, of this physical existence that we have. And we'll be able to see the big picture. We won't have uh, depression or arthritis or all the things that happen with us in this physical existence. We won't get tired. We'll be refreshed all the time, so to speak. And it'll be like the, the, the heart of the day for us when we are feeling our best, but even more than that. This is the vision that Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain. They saw Christ in his glorified state. And also it speaks of, of Moses and Elijah. Well, they must have been somewhat in a glorified state. We, we don't know. We don't read much about that. But they, they must have been in a glorified state of some sort or another. Christ, of course, in a far greater glorified state. But we see there that uh, uh, this vision carried with them all the way to the very end. And when Peter thought about putting off his tent, his temporary dwelling, uh, that the vision of what he saw there on the mountain must have given him encouragement to do what he knew he had to do. This is when the government of God will be restored on earth. 
it's important for us to understand the distinction that the millennium is not technically the, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as we're told in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So those individuals on the earth are going to be ruled by the kingdom of God. God's government will be at work on the earth, and we will be uh, part of that government. But the millennium, this uh, the picture of this feast is the thousand years when that government will reign over physical human beings on this earth. And there's so much more. And there are going to be wonderful messages that are given here during the feast to help us to see the vision of that time. This is not a vacation. It's a feast of God with purpose. So we need to absorb the vision of God's coming kingdom ruling on this earth. So be sure to put God first. It's very important that we approach the feast with a spiritual understanding, not staying up so late every night trying to cram as much of life into it as we can, but going to bed at a good, decent hour, getting up at a good, decent hour so that we have time to pray before God and perhaps read a few chapters or go over the notes from the sermon the day before. Well, we need to have uh, a time to do all those things. And we're not going to enjoy the sermon. We're not going to appreciate the sermon if we're wiped out the next day because we stayed up too late and partying with friends. Uh, it's, it's good for food. It's good for drink during this time. But there comes a time when you have to go to bed. And I've learned that over a period of time. It, that's one of the things as we get older, we, we eventually learn that it does pay to go to bed at a decent hour because we enjoy the rest of the day, the rest of the time, uh, much better the next day. Uh, rest so that you can receive the messages that are offered up the next eight days. So tonight, be sure to go back, uh, get to bed at a decent hour, get up at a decent hour, pray for the uh, sermon, the sermonette, the special music, all the, the uh, facilities and everything, that everything will go well. And during this time, let us practice the way of life, the way of give with ourselves and with the people out in this world. Let's be examples to the world of the right way of life. And let us be an example to all, to everyone, and to portray, to, to practice the way of that future kingdom of God. And when God, when Christ comes back to this earth, will be resurrected, and we'll be able to teach all of mankind and solve the problems that we see here below.